Our Father, we, we love, love, love your presence. And what a moment there was as we adored you and could not stop singing, holy, holy, holy. It sounds a bit like the descriptions of heaven that we read in your word, Lord. And so as we now gather around your word, would you open it up to us? Would you anoint my words that they would be clear and helpful? Would you open our hearts that we would be stirred by you? And would you speak to us by your spirit? I pray now that the Holy Spirit would come and fill each and every one of us, that you would teach us, that you would transform us, and that we would honour and glorify you. Amen. So as a church, we're spending quite a lot of time in the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, which is called Ephesians, and uh, we're looking at really important foundations. So back in September, we looked at the foundation of identity, then we looked at the foundations of the church, then we've looked at foundations for spiritual warfare, and now we're looking at at the foundations for relationships. And uh, I've called this talk, How We Talk. And uh, really it picks up on some of the things Rob said last week. So last week, Rob drew this contrast between unbelievers and believers. And the fact that uh, unbelievers are characterised, as it says in Ephesians 4.17, of having futility of thinking and darkened understanding and all those sorts of things. And how we as believers should be contrasted with that because we know Christ. We've learnt Christ, we're in Christ, and so there's a difference. And Paul issues a series of challenges looking at a series of areas of lifestyle and behaviour where we're to put off the wrong ways of living and put on the right ways of living for us to step into our identity in Jesus. And uh, so we mentioned last week falsehood being replaced with truth, of anger being dealt with, not going you know, when the sun goes down, you've dealt with your anger, um, that stealing is replaced with work, and then these verses pick up on those theory, on those examples. So, if you've got your Bibles with you, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, and I'm going to read through to chapter 5 and verse 7. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every kind of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these things are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, 
For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Maybe, reading that, you can see why it's been quite hard to pull together. Um, There's a lot in there, so I don't promise to do a full job on it, but I'll try and uh, go with where the Spirit's emphasising. But actually, I need a volunteer to start off with. (laughs) Pam, thank you, Pam. So this is where the towel comes in. So this is... (laughs) This is... Hi, Pam. You know how we're friends, Pam. (laughs) Um, So this is an illustration that Amy Carmichael actually used. And she was a missionary in India for for decades. And, um, um, yeah, it's Fireman Sam on there. She didn't use that towel. But um, what I've got here is a a mug that is full to the brim of a liquid. Pam, I'd just like you to hit me, push me, something like that. Oh, like act me? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Push, maybe more than hit. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Let's go. Yeah, you can sit down now. Thanks. Thanks to Pam. I wasn't expecting that shoulder move. But, uh... So. What came out of that mug when I was gently nudged by <laughs> Pam there was water. And that's because the mug was full of water. Whatever was in the mug came out of the mug when it was disturbed. So wine didn't come out, sadly. Or maybe not sadly, I don't know. What spills out is evidence of what's inside. And we're going to think this morning about when we're disturbed in life, when we're nudged in life, when life throws stuff at us, what spills out? Because what spills out is a picture of what's inside. Jesus says, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of, in Matthew 12, 34. And so we're particularly going to think about the area of speech, but a bit broader than that as well. What are we full of? What is it that spills out of us? And uh, Paul actually mentions three areas in this passage. So he mentions speech, sex, and greed. And we're going to mainly focus on on speech, but I will just reference the other two as well. But speech, firstly, is such an important area of life. How we talk and what we say is vital. It's vital to our health, actually, but it's vital to the health of the community that we're part of, vital to Jubilee. Vital to our family. And Paul could here have focused on all sorts of different areas of life, but the fact he gives so much time and attention and space to speech makes us think that maybe we should take up and take notice. And already, back in verse 25, he'd mentioned falsehood and how we should put that off and speak truthfully to one another, but now he expands the theme. So in verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. The word there is rotten. It's the word that's applied to fish or fruit. There should be a tasty picture up here now. Yeah, exactly. That's what unwholesome talk looks like. Rotten to the core. 
So what spills out of us? Is it unwholesome talk? Verse 31, he goes further. He he describes, I've had to spend time in this verse, this last period, and it's been horrible. It's been horrible. The number of times I've come away from my prep and just felt dirty because I've spent time thinking about this verse. So sorry, but you're going to have to read it. A list of horrible speech-related characteristics. Bitterness, which is harboring grievances, refusing to work towards reconciliation. Rage, that's outbursts of temper, anger. Quick, you know, flying off the handle, we use that phrase. That outburst, underpinned by um, a selfishness which doesn't get its own way. It's what rages. Whereas anger is a continuous kind of seething, harboring it, letting it fester and grow. There's a reason Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, because it just is there growing in the darkness. Brawling is the next word. I always think of this in a kind of physical sense, you know, a kind of fight. But actually the sense here is, is more of like this imposition of yourself, this kind of overbearing physicality to the speech that you use. This kind of aggressiveness, shouting, clamour type idea. And then slander, that's paired with, which is the tearing down of another person. That reputational damage lies about someone's character. Bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Or malice is about evil accusations and words that are intended for harm. I don't know how to describe malice actions without the word maliciousness. It's just that horrible, evil edge to it that's seeking to destroy And that can often lead to actions as well. Now, some people see a hierarchy here, or lowerarchy, as you go through it, which is why I've displayed it like that. That as the words go on in the list, they become more potent, more destructive, more deeply embedded in a person. And if we think of it like that, then maybe that's why the writer to the Hebrews warns us to guard against the root, allowing a root of bitterness to grow because that's a doorway in then that grows into all these other things. But I wonder if you look at that list, do you recognise any of those traits in yourself? That's why it's been horrible for me to spend time in the verse. Because there's bits of me there that would come across some of those and it's not pleasant. And that's why we're to get rid of it. That's what Paul says. But there's more, if that wasn't bad enough, there's more. So down in verse four of chapter five, he describes, uh, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. Swearing, vulgarity. I think humour is such a tricky area for us actually someone's joke is another one's offence and there's kind of humour in that offence that seems to be part of the the British approach to humour in our culture humour often runs very close to the edge of things satire, sarcasm loads of innuendo 
everywhere you look, this kind of cutting humour, making fun of others' misfortune, making them the butt of the joke, cursing, misogyny, belittling, crudeness, lewdness, crassness. You don't have to watch your telly for long to see much of that come across. And this is the picture that Paul paints of the speech of unbelievers. That's how unbelievers should talk or do talk. But he says, verse 4, these things are out of place in the household of God. In verse 31, we're to get rid of these things. And in verse 29, we're to not let any of these things come out of our mouths. Christians should look different from the world and we should sound different from the world. We should talk differently. So that's speech. And then he talks about sex and greed as well. And I suppose these are kind of bodily appetites, if you like. That could be a summary of them. And uh, like I say, I'm not going to major on this. There's probably a whole other sermon we could spend on this. But he he uses three phrases in verse 3. He talks about sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. And he uses the same three words in verse 5 as well. No immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. And the first two words, sexual immorality and impurity, or sometimes translated fornication and immorality, cover all types of sexual sin. And in biblical terms, that is every kind of sexual activity that is outside of marriage relationship of a man and a woman. That's what those two words represent. It covers all of that. You see, Scripture only talks positively. The only type of sexual activity Scripture talks positively about is sex within a heterosexual marriage context. That is it. And so here, Paul includes everything else. Physical sexual relationships that are outside of those boundaries of heterosexual marriage is on the no list. It's under the sexual immorality and impurities. That's premarital sex. It's sex if you are married, but you have sex with someone outside of your marriage. We call that adultery. It's homosexual, sexual activity. It's the whole lot. And it's things like pornography. It's things like lust. Because as Jesus says, if a man looks lustfully at a woman, he's committed adultery in his heart. Those two little words cover that whole multitude of things. And he says, there must not even be a hint among you. And greed, I mean, I think we let ourselves get away with greed a lot. This is a sin which is absolutely rampant in our society. How many of us overconsume or overindulge? And it's probably fairly easy to apply that to food. But what about other things? What about purchasing things? Impulse buys. How many times does the Amazon man drop off a parcel at your house? Each day. 
But seriously, what about this need to upgrade to the next model? To update, to be on top of things. I've had this a couple of years, it's time to get a new one. This overconsumption. And we're, it's absolutely endemic in our consumerist culture. And we're bombarded by messages telling us that that is okay. It's normalized. And it's really hard for us to not be sucked into that. It's hard for us to notice it. Sexual immorality, impurity and greed. Paul says these people are idolaters because they put their bodily appetites in first place. They worship them in some sense. They're the God that they pursue. And Paul says that's improper for God's holy people in verse 3. Improper for us to act like that because it's incompatible with holiness. And he goes on. I mean, the language here is really strong. And Sam talked earlier about the gospel being offensive. Introduce someone to verse six, uh, sorry, verse five. No person will, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. And there's a deception related to it. And it's interesting that he links that deception to the area of sex and sexuality and the area of consumerist greed. Because we know that the lies are there, don't we, in those areas. He says, don't have any partnership with them. So, that's the negative picture that Paul paints in these verses. Something to chew over in life group this week, isn't it? But fortunately for us, we're not left there. Because actually Paul shows us what these things can be replaced with. And so instead of, in each area of speech that he goes through, he offers a replacement. And so in verse 29, instead of unwholesome talk coming out of our mouths, he says it should be only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Helpful for building up, benefits others, meets their needs. It does them good. That's what our talk should be. It shouldn't be rotten. It should do them good. It should build them up. Literally, this could be translated as impart grace or give grace to the person you're speaking to. And Peterson in the message translates it as, um, or paraphrases it as, say only what helps, each word a gift. I just love that. Is that how we speak? Each word that we give is a gift to that person rather than rottenness. And then verse 31, where we're told to get rid of that list of horrible stuff, he then says in verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So that bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander and malice is replaced with kindness, compassion, forgiveness. And notice how it's all done in community. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other. 
That's where the fullness of this comes. And then, in verse 4, obscenity, foolish talk and coarse joking are replaced with thanksgiving. I find that really surprising. That's the thing Paul goes after. I'd like to, uh, I don't often read long quotes, but this one I think is worth it. And the theologian's name is fabulous. So this is Klein Snodgrass. (laughs) Surprisingly, Paul offers thanksgiving as a catch-all description of the language that does fit Christ. That when you knock that cup, what spills out is thanksgiving. This doesn't impose a narrow limitation on language. Rather, it recognises how determinative an attitude of thanksgiving is for life. I love that. When we acknowledge God and give thanks for life from him, responsibility to him is established and life is ordered away from self-centeredness and sin. Sin springs from ingratitude. Thanksgiving is an antidote for sin, for it is difficult to both give thanks and sin at the same time. If you're being thankful, how can you be bitter at the same time? If you're being thankful, how can you indulge in coarse joking at the same time? If you're being thankful, obscenities will not come out of your mouth. So is thankfulness spilling out? When life jolts you, does thankfulness spill over? What have you thanked God for today? How many times have you thanked in the last week? There's a danger here as well, I think. When we read things like this, it's very easy for us to look at the set of things that we should have been doing before in the law that Jesus has fulfilled for us and now just read this and replace it with a whole new set of regulations. We call that legalism. That's not what Paul's describing here. He's not setting up a list of to-dos and to-don'ts. He's not saying, okay, you've got an obscenity issue. So last week it was 10 times. This week we're heading for four. You get to the end of the week and you go, yeah, it was only four obscenities. I'm doing well. Next week we'll try and get it down to three. And by the summer holidays, when I've got my beach body, (laughs) I'll be down at zero obscenities. It's not like that at all. It's not like that at all. It's not a set of things that are put there for us to measure against. This is our identity in Christ, the new identity. What Paul describes in this passage, that contrast, which hopefully I've been able to paint a bit of, of the unbeliever and the believer, that contrast is so stark that there is nothing that you or I could do to get from that to that in our own strength. It is about the grace of God transforming our lives. It is about God's transformational power in us because we have a new identity in Christ. 
And actually, when you dig in past what we've looked at and look at the references in here, you'll find that the number of references to our identity as believers is amazing, actually. And you can read it and feel like you're reading chapter one again. So the next slide shows the pictures. Um, this is from our website. These are the titles of the talks that we did in, at the very start of this Ephesian series when we looked at our identity. So look at those, and I will read to you a few verses from here. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit who has sealed you for the day of redemption. So sealing is on there. We've got, as God's dearly loved children, so that's all about adoption. It says that we, these things are improper for God's holy people. That's up there as well. We've got, yeah, sealed for the day of redemption, I've already said, and that's mentioned again later. And redemption is up there. We've got forgiveness. That is up there. This isn't Paul coming up with a whole load of new things. And neither was it, back in chapter 1, Paul just writing about this theological theory which seems very nice to write about. No, those truths should be life-changing. And in fact, it's those truths that are the things that are life-changing. We will look different. The contents of the cup can be changed when we're in Christ. Yes, we need to be ruthless with sin whenever we spot it. Yes, we need to make sure that we fill ourselves with good things because we know that rubbish in means rubbish out. But it's not about how hard we try. It's about his power in us. It's about our new identity that forms the heart in us of that motivation to live in the good of our salvation. And I think we can identify in this passage actions of the whole Trinity, actually, in this work in us. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the actions we take are about partnering with God. So I've got three motivational factors for us to finish with. The first one is the example of God. Verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. But my question is, how can you copy your father if you don't look at him? If you don't know him? If you don't spend time with him? And that's why it's a walk. It's a walk with him. It's walking in the way of love with the father of love. And... So those words that we looked at, that kindness and that compassion and that forgiveness and that grace and that love, how do we know what they really look like unless we see them in the Father? They're magnificent and powerful words that change us. We should meditate on them. Let me give you an example using kindness. I think in recent years, there's been an increase in this be kind thing. And you can get clothes now that say, be kind, and so on. I love the fact that, you know, they're quoting scripture at us. Even in this consumerist market, you know, if they encourage you to buy that, then buy it. And underneath, <laughs> just write, you know, Ephesians 4.29 on it. No, not, wrong verse. 32, yeah. But why shouldn't we piggyback on that? Oh, you're wearing a t-shirt that says, be kind. 
I believe that too. And here's why. Because this is what kindness looks like. Let me introduce you to my father. In our family, kindness is a really important word. And um, when our boys were a lot younger, and you'll find this hard to believe, but we did find ourselves telling them off for various things. <laughs> and uh, but just as is usual for youngsters. But what Beck and I, so Beck's my wife, um, what we found, we felt that it was confusing because it felt like we were just giving them rule after rule after rule after rule. Don't throw that, don't hit that person, don't kick that, don't steal the game, don't etc. etc. Don't throw it towards the window, you know, all that kind of thing. And so what we did was summarized it. And we actually made a little poster of it. And this was the summary. It was in our family, we have kind words, kind hands, and kind feet. Covers an awful lot of stuff. And we still use it. I had to reference it this week, in fact. <laughs> Maybe for myself. <laughs> but it's because it gave a standard rather than a list of rules. So the behavior can then be challenged against the standard. Was that a kind thing to say? No, it wasn't. Well, we don't do that in our family. Was that a kind thing to snatch? No, it wasn't. Well, we don't do that in our family. And kindness is really powerful. That's an example from Clay Household. But kindness is the tool used by God to lead us to repentance. Not to lead us into having a fluffy time, but to lead us to change. To lead us to pursue him. To lead us to live lives which look differently. Peter, writing in 1 Peter, says this, and you might recognise some of the words in the first bit of this sentence. Put aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander, so you may grow in salvation if you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. It's that that moves us to look more like him, to follow his example. And we could do the same exercise with compassion and with forgiveness and with grace and with love. And maybe that's something for life groups this week. What is it about those characteristics in God that you see? Because they are in God. Let me just read you one verse from Exodus. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. That's God. So do you know him? Because if you know him, then you can follow his example and that is transformational and it is beautiful. The second motivation, I said it affected all of the Trinity, so that was the example of the Father and this motivation is the sacrifice of Christ. So in verse 2, it says... Walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrance, fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And I just wonder, do we really, really, really understand the magnitude of the cross? Do we really get it? I don't think I do. Jesus dies in our place for our benefit. What are those benefits? We are saved from something to something, Riken says. 
It means that if we truly learn Christ, then we will act the way he acts. He loved us. He gave himself up for us as a sacrifice. Walk in the way of love. So we've got the example of the Father, we've got the sacrifice of the Son, and we've got the pleasure of the Holy Spirit. Verse 30. Actually, I should be honest here. So Paul states the negative of this, because he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit in verse 30. But my reasoning is that if it's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit, then it must be possible to please the Holy Spirit as well. So I think I'm on okay ground here. You gave a bit of agreement, so I'll go with it. The Holy Spirit is so near, so close, so intimate, so thoroughly involved in our salvation and our sanctification, our being made to look like Jesus, so involved in our lives that it's possible to grieve him when we ignore him. And therefore it's possible to live in a way which pleases him, brings him pleasure. Beck, already referenced today, but she is my closest friend. She's my companion. What would grieve her? I'm sure there's a long list. (laughs) But me ignoring her, me using her in sermon illustrations, me... Me sidelining her, forgetting about her, making decisions without her, treating her as a convenience when I want something and an inconvenience when I want to do my own thing. Making decisions which do me or our family harm or are foolish. They grieve her. So what pleases her? Well, the opposite. Cherishing and loving her Spending time each day with her, connecting with her, including her. And I think so many of those actions I've just said there in a marriage relationship are analogous to what the relationship with the Holy Spirit can be like as well. And I love this phrase here. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And again, this must remind us of chapter one, where we're told that when you believed, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. That was about the day we believed, the start of our salvation. The day of redemption is about the end of our salvation, that day when redemption is fulfilled. The Holy Spirit is there at the beginning and the end of our salvation, and every step between. Don't grieve him, bring him pleasure. That's probably a good place to wrap up. You see, it's very easy, I think, to feel like we're failing. Maybe, as I've read this, it's kind of Holy Spirit's put an identifying mark on some things. And it's very easy for us to drift into sin. That's why we have to be ruthless with it. But the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are so intimately involved in our salvation. The fact that it all begins and ends with him means we can have confidence in his unrelenting grace towards us. So when you're knocked, when life brings you a knock, when you're cut up by that driver who really shouldn't be driving like that, when you stub your toe 
on the doorstep, when the bill arrives that you weren't expecting, when life gives you the nudges or the knocks or the really hard hits, (laughs) what spills out? What's going to come out? What's on the inside? Can we stand? Just bring your thoughts now to to Jesus. Allow the Holy Spirit to come upon you again. Father, we're listening. We're listening. Would you shine a light on any areas where in our lives where it means that what spills out of us is not of you? Because God, we want to be a people who are holy, and blameless before you. We want to step into and know fully our identity in you. So would you challenge us? And would you fill us with all your goodness, with all your graciousness, with all your love and kindness and compassion, so that we would be a people who whatever life throws at us, whatever situation we find ourselves in, what spills out is your loving grace towards others. We want to be a people who point so clearly to you, who are so attractive because everywhere we go, it's like Jesus is in the room. And so we are sorry. Just why don't you repent now if there's anything that you need to repent from? Confess it before him. We know that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins. And so we know, Father God, that we are flawed humans who fall short and who make mistakes. And yet we know that your power in us is mighty. Mighty to save and mighty to shape us into men and women who pursue you. And so we pray, Father, that each of us, as we lay aside sin that so easily entangles us, that we would run the race for you. We would forget all that stuff that's behind and we would be people who are characterised by your holiness and your grace. Lord, that we would be people whose talk is full of grace and seasoned with salt, who are full of the kindness and love of God. So help us, Father, we pray. We surrender ourselves to you again and offer ourselves to be used by you. In Jesus' name, amen.